I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Today on this episode, I talk to Ed Anton, who leads the church in Hampton Roads, Virginia. Ed shares about how he became a Christian, about his first marriage, divorce, and remarriage, how he left a high-powered corporate job for the ministry, how he came up with the idea for the book Repentance, what is communal repentance and how it can help in the wake of COVID. He talks about four components of a successful corporate repentance. And finally, he ends by talking about how to make this life count. All this and more on this episode of the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, to make this life count, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. I want to invite you to the 2021 CLIMB Small Church Leadership Conference. If you're leading in a small church, a small ministry, or a small group, you do not want to miss this event. Here's how you'll benefit. You'll hear from inspirational speakers, people like Mufid and Jesse Tomei from Lebanon, Josue Ortega from El Salvador, Todd Assad, Tim Summerlin, Kyle Spears, Jennifer Conzen, Joel Peed, Joel Nagel, Kelsey Hahn, David Jung, John Lusk, and more. You'll receive practical instruction every day. We'll have a theme to help you and your ministry grow. Every class is going to give you tools to revive your spirit and grow your ministry. The materials are custom designed to help you and your ministry. It'll help you to grow spiritually. The Friday program is dedicated to helping you to revive, refresh, and restore the joy of your salvation. Joel Peed, in particular, is customizing a program to make 2022 your best year ever spiritually. You'll receive ministry planning, help, and plans for your ministry. The Saturday program is designed by by Joel Nagel. And he's going to help you come up with a complete plan, a program, and a curriculum for your ministry in 2022. You'll leave the conference with confidence that you have in your hands the material and the support you need to make 2022 your best ministry year so far. Finally, and I think most importantly, you're going to receive a massive amount of encouragement. Coming out of COVID, we all need encouragement. We need to be with one another, encouraging one another. And so you're going to spend three days together with disciples who are climbing the same mountain as you. They understand what you're going through. And so you're going to make friends, you're going to laugh, and you're going to learn every day. You will not regret coming. It's December 2nd through 5th. It's about three months away, 2021, in Dallas, Texas. We're staying at the Marriott. You can register at robskinner.com. Just look for the Climb Conference tab. Just register today, please. If you're hesitating or wavering, I just want to ask you, just go for it. Just sign up. You will not regret it. Today on my program, I've got Ed Anton, and I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. Uh, Ed and I have kind of grown up spiritually on different sides of the continent. I've always been on the West Coast. Ed seems to be on the East Coast. But he's a person that I've respected for so many years for his teaching, his writing, his commitment to 
expositional uh, teaching and preaching. He leads the church in Hampton Roads. Uh, he's, a, he's a powerful man of God, and I'm really thrilled to have him on the program. Ed, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much, Rob. I look forward to it as well. Yeah, me too. Can you tell us how you became a Christian? Sure. In 1993, I moved to the Dallas, Texas area, and I was Catholic. I had a young family, and we were walking around our stereotypically North Dallas suburban neighborhood. Everybody was into one-upsmanship, as was I, maybe the worst of all. And as we walked about the neighborhood, I was making comparisons, and but meeting neighbors along the way. Many of the neighbors were friendly, but the friendliest neighbors came out, disrupted us in the walk right in the middle of the road, very, very friendly, invited us over for dessert that night, went over to their home, and I was underwhelmed by their home, but feeling <laughs> rather good about myself, of course, in my one-upsmanship. And no furniture in the living room, just like a boom box. You'll, you'll have to like um, go to Wikipedia for boom box to understand what that is. But, but then the side room had a, just an old TV with rabbit ear, tinfoil antenna. It, it, was, it was shabby, clean, but let's just say well-worn. And after kind of walking all through, I was feeling so good about myself, but the fellow who was the, uh, the father, uh, his name is Mike Mines. Some of you may know Mike and Janice Mines uh, and perhaps even uh, Drew and, and, and Kelly and John Mark, their kids. But nonetheless, uh, I, I couldn't contain myself because I was so shallow. And I, and, and I said to Mike, I said, Mike, again, in, in my mind thinking, I'm winning. Like, I'm winning. I, my, my house is so much better appointed. My company car is so much better. My, my personal car is so much better. My lawn is in better shape. All of these ugly, shallow comparisons. But anyway, here I am thinking I'm winning, but I couldn't contain myself even in that and said, so, so Michael, what's up with your house? And he's like, what do you... What do you mean? And I said, well, and I went on to, you know, describe maybe less charitably, even than I have now, if you could imagine that. And Mike just kind of paused, stared right in and what I felt like was then through me and had such poise and confidence and said to me, well, maybe we just have different priorities for our resources. Hmm. I remember thinking, whoa there's, there's something under the hood here. And I also remember thinking, I don't feel like I'm winning anymore. And that interestingly, as a kind of a ladder climber, ambitious young corporate guy, I was astounded, not because he was so impressive, but because it was so simple mm. and it caused me to sit up and take notice. And I ultimately ended up studying the Bible with Mike. The very first scripture crushed me. The very first scripture was, uh, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Wow. And I, I remember having read that, looked over at Mike at his dining room, very old table, by the way, but, but at, <laughs> at his dining room table, such as it was, and, and said to him, I'm dead. And he goes, what do you mean? Because I, I, I was able to recognize from what they had shared that if, if someone is considering themselves a Christian, then they ought to then be considering themselves a disciple because mm -hmm. there is no scriptural difference. And at the realization of that, 
I, I just recognized and I said, I'm dead. I'm dead wrong. What must I do to be saved? And within the next maybe two weeks tops, he was able to show me through the word of God, that very path. Uh, I radically, radically repented. And uh, fr from that point forward was, was baptized and have uh, had a, amazing life in Christ since 1993. Oh, okay. Hold on a second there. You read, you read one scripture and you came to that conclusion. I, I mean, are you exaggerating? Yes. yes. I, well, I mean, there was a little bit that went into it, right? I mean, Jesus says, you know, open your eyes and see that the fields are, are, are ripe for harvest and God has already prepared the harvest. And I think what God had prepared for me was that I I was trying to justify myself through my anemic approaches to Christianity that mm. I was somehow a Christian, mm. but I saw this guy and the people that would come to his house and his friends, and they all called themselves disciples, which I thought was either spooky or bizarre or cultish. <laughs> but ultimately, you know, I started to, to, to realize that, oh, they, they see it in the Bible. Isn't that cute that they use the word disciple? Well, good on them. They can go with that discipleship thing. I'm just a good old Christian. I'm just a humble Christian. Let them be these overachieving disciples. But when the scriptures connected them, and I still had at least a respect for the scriptures, as, as little as I understood them, I, I, I nonetheless recognized that, that there was power in these scriptures. But when it was connected, that a disciple is a Christian, and a Christian is therefore then a disciple, those Venn circles overlap one another with with no um, mutual exclusivity, I, I recognized that I was nowhere near then what the Bible was saying. And I had to have a radical deconstruction and reconstruction of all that I understood. So it took you a couple of weeks to become a Christian? It did. From that point forward, then we studied the Bible for about two weeks, and, and then I was baptized. You must have been studying pretty much every day. I was so stinking eager. Uh, I, I would I would show up at their house at 7 a.m. because I thought there was a study. It turns out there wasn't. But nonetheless, I was like, well, I just assumed there would be. It's Saturday morning. What else are we going to do on a Saturday morning? Uh, but but they woke up. They they you know. It, thankfully, a couple of the guys all lived in the same neighborhood, and we were able to piece together some some studies even during that time. But yeah, so we we probably studied every other day or so along that time. Okay. How what did your wife and family think of that? Were they eager about that as well, or? So here's the interesting thing, and not not this isn't um, readily understood, but but I actually was in a previous marriage when I came to Christ in '93, and at that time my, my wife had actually come to Christ before I did. Uh, again, with the, the 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 same church there in Dallas, our, our our fellowship in Dallas. So they they were actually quite encouraged that I I finally saw the light. Uh, when 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 they first started attending and ultimately becoming uh, all in with Christ, I used it as an opportunity to think that I was the funniest imitator of disciples on earth, and you know used it to mock and to entertain myself. And I don't think anybody else was entertained along the way. Uh, so they were quite encouraged. Now now sadly, what, what what began as as all of us on the same page within the next year, unfortunately, was no longer that. Um, and as, um, as as I was the only one that remained on a on a path of discipleship from from that point forward, uh, then a, a lot broke apart, unfortunately. And and I, and I did end up 
during that first and second year of my discipleship, uh, really in despair and, and really in a, a very difficult spot. And you know, my whole family had, had really fallen apart at that point. And of course, everybody trying to pick up the pieces. And um, yeah, so, so it was a, a really intense start to a life in Christ. So your, your first wife became a Christian first in Dallas, and then mm-hmm. you became a Christian. So you, typically that's like the beginning of the happy ending and everything's going great, but then things just fell apart. Yeah, you know, things were on a pretty cool trajectory to some degree, right? We were, began to lead a Bible talk, then a family group, which at the time in Dallas meant that you were overseeing a few Bible talks. And, but, but then I had a, a, a pretty clear career path with Coca-Cola and I was already being groomed for the next spot, but I, but I think the leadership in Dallas wanted to see if perhaps, even though it was pretty early, about six, seven months in, if maybe we would consider ministry. And they had a time together where they were doing their, their level best, I believe, to try to persuade us. But then some of that came across perhaps heavy handed and maybe even some, some harshness in the midst of all of that. It was again, a very difficult time it would have been an easy time to become jaded by leadership, even because it really was a lot that came to that one, one evening of discussion, where we, we ended up at, at cross purposes with leadership. And as a, as a result from that, it was it was very difficult for um, my, my first wife then to be able to continue in that and ended up um, leaving. And then when when I later didn't leave and and I was I was willing to um to move to take a new job to do anything to rearrange anything in my life but once I knew what it was to really live out discipleship that that became a non-negotiable and as that was part of the non-negotiable it also it just I think it had too too many connections to to the experiences Mm. that that we had early on uh, and so, and so for us, um, it, it became then an ultimatum of, well, then, then there, I, I will not continue um, if if you're going to continue down this 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 path of discipleship. So that, that was, yeah, one of the worst days ever, of course, of life, where you felt like, my goodness, am I am I dead? This is this is so painful. I should be dead at this point. Yeah. But yeah, and and of course, there were lots of efforts to try to work it out, you know, lots of efforts during that time, but, but, but ultimately it did kind of have that, um, that, that one issue that ended up uh, being deterministic. The issue was whether to continue in your, your job with Coca-Cola and your career or go into the ministry. Is that the, the issue? No, no, no. The, the issue for the, for, for the marriage and family was would I continue in discipleship or not? I see. Um, at that point, career or geography mattered little to me, I really. Uh, I mean, n- none of that meant much in comparison to family. Okay. Um, but the, the very difficult choice then was family versus, you know, having an integrity before the scriptures of what it is to really follow Jesus. Right. And, right. and, and, and could I, in my conscience, knowingly, make a rather significant compromise on what it was to follow Christ. Mm. Um, and it, it just wasn't, it was, it was, again, did I waffle? Did, what was it? Of course, of course I did. Uh, 
but I, I, I think God did keep me tethered, praise God, um, to, to what it really looked like to, to, to really live out him. Uh, but as a result, that, that then ended up being the defining issue that, that um, really caused my, my first wife to say, then, then this isn't where she wanted to be or wanted the kids to be. So she just decided she did not want the intensity of discipleship and she chose, chose another path. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And in, in, in that too, then, you know, moved, moved back to uh, her hometown uh, with the kids. Oh my gosh. Okay. How it was, old- again, tough. It was, you know, it was my, you know, in a sense, college sweetheart and my three-year-old and one-year-old and yeah, it was a very difficult time. How old were you at the time when that happened? About 30 years old. Well, so you're, you're well into your career. You're not just getting started. How long had you, had you been married at that point? Uh, not, not very long at that point, just about um, three years. Three years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, can you, can you fast forward and just kind of share how, how'd you meet Deb, your current wife? And where, where'd you go after that just low point? Sure. So, so after that, that low point in, in the middle of, of all that, by the way, I did kind of agree to maybe let's try to move to a different geography, see if any of that would be helpful. And we did, we moved to the, the, the DC area where we, we all had a lot of mutual friends, uh, but, but that also didn't seem to be enough. Uh, and again, determining to stay on a path of, of lordship and, and, and um, living as a disciple of Christ still resulted in the dissolution of the family, sadly. But but now I'm in the D.C. area, and now I'm a, 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 a regional director at Coca-Cola for marketing, and that, that's all going rather well. But in the in the midst of all of that, um, I, I would come home to a full house, and there was a lot to do and to occupy me with. Now I was coming home to an empty house, and even though it was a demanding job, there, there still was that time that was always dedicated to family that was now void, uh, which I could have filled perhaps with something unproductive, but it seemed to get filled more with Bible study or outreach or discipleship opportunities or just simply fellowship and fun. And as that began to be something in which I engaged, uh, that began to grow and there was even fruit from all of that, uh, so much so that, again, uh, I was asked if I would uh, consider leaving that career and entering into the ministry. Uh, so that happened there in, in the Washington DC area. And it was an easy decision actually, even though it was you know maybe about a 80% pay cut or so, uh, and, and all the other stuff taken away too, that kind of goes with the corporate life, like a car and expense account and all of those things. Uh, but, but it was an easy decision. Interestingly, I had read just a little while earlier a book about John Scully and Steve Jobs. John Scully was the head of PepsiCo Mm -hmm. and Steve Jobs was trying to lure him over to Apple back at that time. And at the end of their time together, Steve had flown to New York to meet with John Scully. Uh, They were in Central Park and before Steve Jobs got onto the plane in this book, he, he says to John Scully, just to kind of put a splinter in his mind, he says to him, John, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Sell sugared water or come with me and change the world. Mm. 
And obviously I'm still quoting that now. It, right. it had <laughs> it had a rather significant impact on me as I was now having this new significance in Christ, but yet occupying most of my hours with selling sugared water. Mm. So I had resolved even during my Bible studies, honestly, that if if ever asked to give up all of that, I I, I surely would. And I had resolved it in the Bible studies, but 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 even as I made my way through, you know, two steps forward, three steps back of my first couple of years of discipleship, I, I still resolved that I would. And that book was helpful, by the way, it was a secular book, obviously, but it was still helpful uh, to give me some perspective of what, what did I really want to do with the rest of my days coming up. Wow. And, and so with that, I went into the ministry. And once I was in the ministry, then I, you know, had different friends that were in different church leadership positions. And one of them, and, and at this point, I'm now single. Uh, it, it's only a few years forward now um, from from um, all of the other events that I just mentioned. So I'm I'm still in my early 30s, and but but he had a a young doctor residence down in the Charlottesville, Virginia church. She had completed UVA med school and, and UVA uh, residency, and now she was just beginning private practice. And uh, they set me up on my very first date. It was a blind date, of course, my very first date. I had to get from Baltimore down to Charlottesville. Again, I'm new in the ministry, so I also hadn't figured out how to afford a car just yet because I had to hand in my, my company car. I, I tried three, four different options for cars, including a U-Haul rental, which <laughs> I realized would have cost me about $700 to go from Baltimore to Charlottesville and back. But my roommate... Uh, we were waiting with bated breath for, uh, again, to, to afford living where I lived, which a home that I owned, I had to kind of fill it with a bunch of single brothers. Mm. Praise God that that was an option. But one of the single brothers that was there actually owned somewhat of a working van, uh, again, in generous term, but, <laughs> but he didn't have plates. But the plates arrived like earlier that day that I was supposed to drive all the way down to Charlottesville for my first date, my very first date. But the sliding door on his van wouldn't stay shut. So we had to use rope to keep it shut uh, on the way. And I, I get get in the van and uh, make my way down to Charlottesville. And, and, and sure enough, I mean, for me, it was like, oh, you know, <laughs> angels were flying about and I was like, I, and, and Deb was just, you know, so amazing. So terrific. And uh, Lowell and Angie Hoover kind of set up that date. They were leading the Charlottesville church at the time. And, and uh, yeah, I, I was, I was all in. As a matter of fact, the night before, however, I was uh, out street preaching with some of the single brothers in the house. And it was so exhilarating. We're having so much fun. Bible studies developed. The Bible studies went late into the night. And I remember at the end of the night saying to the guys, you know, like, how is life going to get any better than this? Maybe we should just like stay single. Let's just have like an undivided devotion and just like go for it with the rest of our, like what could be more fulfilling than what we're doing right now? Man, oh man, we shouldn't be in any way divided from, from this. And the next night, of course, I, I come back from my date and I, you know, everybody asked me how, how it was going. And I, I said, you know, that, that talk we had last night, that, you know, that wasn't a vow or anything. That was just me thinking out loud. <laughs> voicing some things that were maybe coming to me at the time so you know, let's let's not let's not get crazy about any vows there because there is no way that's going to be where i'm heading i found the one i found the one and and for me deb really was the one i had to do some convincing though along the way and we, we did date for a bit and and she made a radical move i mean she was in a a very uh 
prestigious place in private practice, but she was also with, you know, six figures of student loan debt uh, as a doctor. Uh, but, but soon after we began dating, about six months later, uh, she, she likewise was asked if she would consider a ministry path. And, you know, if, if I took an 80% pay cut, she took a 90% pay wow. cut, uh, which she did and um, ended up moving up to DC. And we continued to date and we continued to work together in ministry. And through a series of different posts around the, the DC church, we continued in our relationship and ultimately we're, we're married there and have served in the Virginia area wow. ever since that time, now down in the Virginia Beach area. How did that complicate things for, for Deb and for you with you having had a, a broken relationship and then getting remarried? How did you work that out theologically and how did how did you move forward with that? So that that was um, very difficult in in many ways. One is just dating because it would be on weekends where I would would have the kids, and it would also be weekends where we typically have opportunities for dates. And you know, I felt like I was stretched going back. Oh, like, this is my one opportunity with my my, my dear boys, and you know, so th there was that tension to say the least. And uh, likewise, even the theological tension of, man, should I even be thinking that I have a possibility for remarriage? And, but, but, uh, and, and I was actually resolved that, hey, if, if I don't, I don't. And that's fine. I've got great kids and I'll serve the Lord and th this will work out. But uh, I, you know, really did consult a lot of uh, folks and teachers, didn't want to go off of my own understanding was given more than a few books that really went deeper into first Corinthians seven uh, and did, did come away with a, uh, with a confidence based on scripture. It, it, it included also an all night prayer and fasting through, through all of that, because I had to be convinced mm -hmm. too, right. uh, that there was an open door for that. And that my particular situation was applicable to what was being said in first Corinthians seven, mm -hmm. uh, where, where there was an opportunity, uh, to, to, to be bound again, that I truly was unbound based on, on scripture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people like Doug Jacoby and Mike Fontenot and Jim Blau and many others were, were very helpful in, helping to guide me through a, a really difficult time because it's, it's difficult to make those decisions when you have so many emotions flying. Anybody's going to make that decision better than I would ever do it because mm -hmm. emotions cloud me. I think that's a good advice for anybody that if you have a really big life decision and it doesn't get much bigger than that, you're probably the least effective person at making. You'll have to make the decision yourself at the end, but you're going to be the least effective at the decision-making process. In the late 80s and early 90s, there was a, certainly a lot of pride in our movement and a lot of excitement. And and there was a, I remember on several occasions, hey, we're, we've never had a, a, a breakup or a divorce of a disciples, you know, so far. Right. <laughs> that, that, that over time quickly collapsed and came back to reality. Um, how, how, any advice that you would give to a disciple that has gone through a divorce and any hope or, you know, advice going forward for a person going, okay, how, what could I do? Is there a future for me in the kingdom? Well, there, there are a couple of things, by the way, that, that I had to sort through early on. And one was just shame. 
there's just so much shame that seemed to be attached to, to, to that very idea of divorce. And, uh, and then to presume to be a minister with that as my resume uh, really was difficult. It, it did require a deep study to come to a place where I could be resting in the grace of God, strong in the grace of God. And I don't mean grace is like a credit card. Grace is a Jude license for, for uh, doing what you want. Um, but to, to recognize that my identity is not in my tracker, but truly in Christ. But, it, but, but again, it, it can't be a license to just say, well, just do what you want uh, with that grace. Um, uh, there, there, there are a lot of folks. And by the way, after that, I, I really did rededicate myself to, you know what, if anybody is going through a marriage, I, I, I want to, as a minister, I want to save every marriage mm. that is in, with, with, within reach that I right. can in some way serve God and serve them. And I, I've always had a very deep passion for that. But there are times where I do find that there are marriages that don't have biblical grounds for divorce and, and certainly then not biblical grounds for remarriage either, uh, where, where people have, in some cases, begun to disregard the clarity of scripture in some of those areas. Uh, and one would do so uh, unadvisedly and, and really at, at one's peril because this is a, a deep covenant, and, and it's not a, a man-made covenant. This is a divine covenant. This is Genesis 2 type stuff. Right. It's, it's really rather big. And so I, I first would just say that the, the, the very fact that, that the Bible does put these constraints, wonderful constraints, that you're going to stay together, mm. uh, really do you know, cause us to, to, to work things out, you know, in one case, Deb and I were working, doing some marriage counseling with neighbors who were having a tough run, and uh, it, it was not going great. Uh, as a matter of fact, we thought it was going better than, you know, you know how this works, just as you think there's a breakthrough, there's, there's it seems to be about a breakup. And as that happened, we actually invited the husband to go ahead and spend the night at our place since he was locked out of his. That That one night turned out to be about three months that he lived with us, wow. but we, we were determined to to continue to to, to love her, love him. Uh, we 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 did, and you know, continued to bring the word of God, and it was so encouraging to see that family healed and those little boys, you know, with a nuclear family, and, wow. and yeah. Uh, so so I think we're we're always determined in that area. But but let me encourage you. There are so many people in our kingdom. That have that have been on their way to divorce court, uh, that are now doing things at the level of marriage retreat coordination and preaching. Uh, there, there is hope in Jesus, and He can heal. He can transform. Behold, I make all things new. Yes, even your marriage, <laughs> not that's, my marriage. Yes, even your marriage. That's super encouraging. I, it, it is very true. Uh, so, please don't feel like you've got to make a. Um, a compromise of integrity before Christ uh, reach out two or three or four more times where you can make every effort to maintain that unity of the spirit. Jesus talks about adultery as a justification for divorce. And can you see some other situations where it would be possible to, to get divorced and then remarried? I think that's the, well, the question that it, this conversation is going to queue up and and certainly in my mind, but in other listeners, and we were actually having a midweek last night, the question came up. I mean, it's, 
it's a hot topic. It's an interesting topic. Sure. You know, over in first um, Corinthians seven, there's a good bit of material on this. Um, and in, in, in verse 12, Paul says in, in the ESV, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. And people say, well, is that not inspired? Because he's saying, I, not the Lord. Well, it's just that Jesus didn't cover this material. Jesus didn't have a situation in Israel where there was a, a mixed marriage that he addressed. We're, we're looking at the mixed marriage here. Anyway, he says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and again, Jesus never addressed this, but Paul is doing so now through the spirit, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Um, and th that's rather important. Uh, likewise, right, right before that, it says in verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Um, and, and so we've, we've got um, some, some, some pretty deep clarity on here, but then we, we do have this one clause that he says, but if the unbelieving spouse leaves, let them leave. In such a case, you are not bound. Mm. And then later, that idea of being bound is also equated with a spouse who's uh, a wife whose husband dies. Uh, and at the very end of the chapter of chapter seven, uh, th there he says that um, uh, that that wife is is no longer bound, um, and and she is free, but only to marry in the Lord. Uh, so again, if there is one other, maybe. Um, situation that seems to be addressed directly by scripture it is it is that one where there is an unbelieving spouse who in this case departs leaves uh and in in that case you are not bound is the directive of paul well thank you for just talking about this and that that's very helpful i know this is a sensitive issue but thank you for you know talking about that um, sure. If, if I could, by the way, you know, later in life, we, we like our, our extended family. So my, my two sons from my first wife, their mom, their, you know, her new husband, their new kids, uh, Deb and myself, our, our, our two kids, we all ended up living within a mile of each other. Oh my gosh. And, and, and ended up being what you'd almost call a tribe. And, doing so much of every birthday party, every holiday, doing all of those things together. As a matter of fact, we have a tradition of coming together on Memorial Day and having a group photo. So there, there's actually this group photo of this odd blended extended tribe uh, <laughs> with, with people that have all worked together and played together. And, and, and honestly, I, my, my first wife and Deb became very, very close friends. And it's, um, you know, it's kind of real testimony there uh, of, of, of what it really can look like with, with humility and charity to, you know, see things go on a much better path than you could have ever imagined. Right. Changing the subject. I got to say you are super polished. And this, this is just my impression. 
So you seem to think. <laughs> Knowing you from afar, I've read your books. I, from afar, there you go. That's I've, a good I've listened, listened to you speak. You're super polished. I, I don't want to use the word corporate, but you're, there's a professional side to you. There's an, definitely a, a feeling of excellence. Is there a side of you that people may not know? Is there something that you wish people knew about you? Well, I I am uh, horribly immature, and and I, I just cannot help if something is funny to to start to pull on that thread, like every single time. It's not childlike. It's childish. It's not commendable, really. Uh, and most people just kind of barely put up with that. It, it leads to a lot of public gaffes it leads to a lot of borderline humor uh, in, in my life and and it, it it is i have only one shot at continued sanctification thanks to deb who is, is there as a as a regulator all along the way but some of this stuff i really do believe is gold and and funny but apparently it is it is not um especially godly i guess so uh, amen i'm i'm learning to regulate Okay. Okay. So you guys got married. What year did you and Deb get married? Oh, we were married in 98. Okay. So 98. So can you give, give me just a, a quick overview of where you've been since that time? Sure. We were, we were married in 98 and immediately um, on the, uh, on the day that we returned from honeymoon uh, moved and moved to go lead the Charlottesville, Virginia church. We were there for six, seven months and then we moved in uh, 99 to Virginia Beach, Virginia, which is the Hampton Roads Church. And we've actually served here, believe it or not, ever since. Uh, even though we moved as a dating couple in the ministry probably seven times before that, each of those about six months. But you know, having, having kind of come to Hampton Roads, we've been able to stay somewhat put. Now we've moved from region to region and we've kind of moved house and bought other houses and done all of that as we've tried to serve in this region here. But nonetheless, we've, we've been here and uh, initially did a lot of work in campus ministry, had a lot of fun and built the early campus ministry here from 99 till about 2008. So I was also a rather mature campus minister in, in my forties. Uh, and uh, then kind of moved into regional work and uh, the Fontenot's were here and they began to kind of help work with us as 2010, 11 and 12 uh, to ramp up to lead the Hampton Roads Church as they were then moving their way over to the South Pacific. And we did. We then uh, came to lead the Hampton Roads Church. And uh, through that as well, uh, we, we uh, took on the responsibility for chairing the American Commonwealth region of churches, which is the 25 churches in kind of the Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Kentucky, uh, West Virginia area, and Delaware. Can't forget Delaware. Okay. So, so we've been doing that also since about 2012. See, and we've also been on the teachers committee. And Deb is, is uh, the first teacher appointed to the teachers committee along with Kay McKean. So we've been doing that for quite a bit now too, over 10 years. Okay, there's there's a lot I want to unpack there. So you've been there since 1990. You've been in the Hampton Roads area 22 years, and right, yeah. You're an excellent teacher. I mean, in your expositional teaching, I know that you're you're really into that as well. 
what would you say to, to a person who's considering theology school? Is, is there a right time? I mean, there's a lot of um, young people that want to grow. There's, there's young leaders or maybe those in their 40s, and they're like, man, when, when am I going to have time to do this? What, do you have any advice on theology school? Um, and maybe you can just share, too, when did you go? What, what was your opportunity? Well, so I am a street teacher. I, I, I only went to school to study out Greek, and that, that's all that I studied at seminary here locally. And, and that was only a few classes. The, the rest is autodidact, you know, self, self-taught. Uh, so, and I've actually been chairman of the teacher's committee as well, so <laughs> of the teacher service team. So it, it's obviously not that firm of a prerequisite. I, I think having a deep grounding in theology and biblical languages is important for sure. Uh, but for anyone who asks advice, I, I try to really try to find out their particular situation in life. So some people are, are almost doing the Wizard of Oz thing where they want to get the diplomas because then suddenly it'll provide them a little bit of validation. Mm. And that's probably not the, the, the best path if that's the reason for it, that you want some sort of external uh, commendation. Uh, I've been able to do okay w- without any of that. Uh, and have had doors open for me and teaching opportunities for me and, and preaching opportunities. But I do recommend it. I, I do feel like if, if, if you're young, by the way, and your family is very young, then get after it. Get after it and get it done. That would be a terrific way to, to, to get your grounding. Uh, and later in life, though, I, I think if, if you've got kids that are coming into the preteen and teen ministry, that would be a, a time to, I would say, back off of that. The, the, the load is pretty heavy. Mm-hmm. And when, when papers are due or translation exercises are piling up, uh, something's got to give. Right. And you don't want it to be, especially at a time where your kids are at a kind of a beautiful tender age where they're really looking to mom or dad at that time to, to help guide and shape them in, in uh, many ways that the scriptures call us to. Right. That's great advice, Ed. I didn't realize, I thought you'd gone to Fuller Seminary or something like that. I mean, you certainly, uh, well, you wrote a book. I mean, there's all, your knowledge of the Bible is pretty deep, but that's very interesting that you just went to classes for Greek. That's super, super fascinating. Um, how did you come up with the idea for the book Repentance? Where, where did that idea, what's the inception of that book? So, uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of a cool origin story, really. I was, I was in Greece on a teaching trip with a bunch of other teachers and sitting on a bus and talking about some of my Greek class that I was taking at the time. This is probably early 2001 or two now. Um, and, and it just was a kernel of an idea. Um, but, but, but then I, I continued in conversations with what was then DPI and talked with a couple of the editors and I was just kind of thrown through they, they were you know wanting to learn more about what I was saying then and at the time DPI was going through a little bit of a dark time and felt like if if they could have a book published on this that it might help them at the time so they then began to then lean on me actually of hey why don't you get this done and, and I remember <laughs> this was maybe um, this is maybe October of 2004. And, and, and they were saying, hey, can you get this done by Christmas? I think because they, they needed to get things in the pipeline to you know, generate some 
some uh, volume there. And it, there was no way uh, for me to do that. I had begun the study, but, but what, what really sparked it, by the way, were just conversations about the Greek and about what a, what a radical difference it was to understand that met, metanoia, you know, people, we always say metanoia, but I, people who are like super nerdy, geeky, like, or that guy doesn't even know how to say it you know, but anyway, <laughs> for the sake of saying it the way everybody understands it. Uh, but metanoia, which is the Greek word for repentance, um, is what was a good bit different than my understanding. Uh, you know, for me, repentance at the time, we, we used to say, by the way, in the 90s, when we would explain away passages, not explain away, but to try to explain deeper passages on repentance, that the original term for repentance was a military command in the Roman army to do an about face. Mm. Did you ever hear that? I By never heard that. No, that must have been East Coast. Well, maybe, it was, maybe it was an East Coast. Thing. Yes. <laughs> but I, I, we, we, it, it, it was just kind of assumed, right? right. It was right. Everywhere you, sure. everybody just said it. So you, you begin, uh, it must have been that, which made it sound like the, the outward expression of change right? without the inward at all. But, but Noya is the word for worldview or the way you make sense of everything. It's, it's kind of a, it's, it's the operating system by which you process all the stimuli that are coming at you, including God and yourself and, 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 and all of life. And, or, but, 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 but that's something very deeply internal. And when that changes, everything changes. And it's so much more powerful than just obeying enough commands to do an about face right you know there, there there could be that just kind of willing yourself white knuckling to turn around versus well when when metanoia really is brought our way courtesy of the holy spirit and everything gets rearranged and the way you see the world is radically different and your allegiance and your affections and your ambitions and your appetites and other a words are all changed <laughs> then like that's so incredibly powerful because you will turn around 100 times out of 100 right you will you will say no to the porn you will say yes uh yes to the service right hundred times out of a hundred, not because it's like, Oh, just, just do it one more time. No, it's, it's just my new appetite. Right. It's just my new allegiance. It's my new ambition. It's, it's, it's my new desire. And when, when desires are all rearranged that way, wow. Uh, it's, it almost feels like it's effortless. Of course it's not always, mm. um, because we're still flesh, <laughs> but nonetheless, it, it, it is, it was, but it was so, um, uh, captivating and also effective for me too in my spiritual growth to understand like let me work on that right. let me work on that right. and then wow look at how the 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 outer trappings right. all fall in line i've got so it's not, not just that you you give the man your second coat it's that you 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 view the situation of a man without a shirt differently you view the situation of a man without food differently and so if you have the extra you you give the food uh, to, you know, to quote John the Baptist in Luke three. Right. It was such a turning point when I read that book. And one of the things that impacted me so much is you referenced the red pill, red pill, blue pill scene from the matrix. Now that's my favorite movie of all time. I think that's, yeah. <laughs> I personally think that movie was designed by God and he used some, um, you know, totally. Yes. Crazy, crazy people to, <laughs> to direct it. But I mean, the, the concepts in there are so deep, but anyway, I don't want to go, go into that, but you talked about that and it just 
that was like a mind change just reading that and just how by taking that one pill, his whole worldview changed. And it really helped me to understand the illustration, helped me to understand, understand the word and the concept. And that's, I just have to commend you for your writing skill because that really helped. And for the past 20, 15 years, I've, I've, always use that in the repentance study, except up, up until about the last five years, because then in the last five years, many people haven't seen <laughs> Ma- yeah, <that's> true. <laughs> Matrix or view it as so old, it really dates me. So I, unfortunately, one of my favorite illustrations is, has gone by the wayside, but it was powerful. Mm-hmm. It, so that's, that's, you know, metanoia, that's... But, but pet- isn't it interesting, too, that in, in that movie, there's there's a whole different realm of reality and a whole different realm of experience that we need to have our eyes open to. And when repentance marches onto the scene in the New Testament, it's always coupled with the kingdom of God. Right. Repent, for the kingdom of God is upon us. Like, you're not going to be able to appreciate this, this supernatural realm, this, this dominion, this this reality uh, with your, your old lenses on, you're, you're going to need to throw all of that off. And, and thus the meta, you know, the change, right. Uh, so that your, your worldview can appreciate this, this new concept. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That happens on a personal, personal level, but in the book, you also talk about corporate repentance. Oh, and, right. And, and so yeah. that's, that's what I want to talk about. And I, Recently with COVID and where I've seen the church go to and the not only the difficulties with the, you know, the disease itself and the, this, the illness and spreading, but the way it's impacted the church. I thought, man, I really should talk to Ed Anton because I, I think that I, I can see a weakening in the church. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about what is corporate repentance? Can you give a a simplified version of what that is. I, I can, but but just to kind of touch on the idea of what you just said too—that the church has weakened, and you know—and I think we've all tried to do some soul searching. Why is it? Because we're we're a lot of us are the shepherds that are you know right exactly. Our, our hand is on the wheel while right. while all of this is occurring, and uh, you know, Jesus says in Matthew six that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The idea that where you invest, your your heart is going to catch up. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Jesus doesn't say once your heart is there, then invest. So, so there is this kind of extrinsic motivation that is actually advocated by Christ there. That go ahead and invest, and you'll see your heart will catch up. But I think it also is true in the antithesis that where you divest, your heart will probably become less um, attached or or in allegiance. And we just have not had the opportunities, the extrinsic opportunities to invest mm-hmm. in Christ. We, it's just the, our, our current circumstance. And it, it would take quite a bit for anybody to overcome all of the externals in order to, to, to maintain that, especially communally and corporately. But again, we, we do find ourselves here. What caused what? It's too difficult to say, but has it occurred? Of course, it has occurred. We, we we all have experienced it. Right. And and even back when when I wrote the book 16 years ago, we were experiencing it again in different pockets in different places. But we've all known what it is to be on a sports team where the spirit of the team just seems to be you know right. at a hundred. Right. And and then likewise to be at at 40 
at other times or in a classroom or in some other collective where, where there is a, a reinforcement at every turn uh, versus cynicism or, or anemic or malaise. And churches go through it as well. Uh, and, and this was the big surprise in studying out repentance as a book. The two big surprises. One was the very, very central role of the Holy Spirit in bringing about repentance. That's maybe for some other time. But the second big surprise was that of the passages that are the kind of the main passages that describe repentance in the Old Testament and the New, that over 90% are communal. Just 10% or about individual repentance. That, mm. that shocked me. Why? Because we are Americans and we are inherently individualists. That's right. Yes. It's, it's the, you know, the, the old saw, how do you tell a fish that he's in water, right? It's, it's that hard. It's how do you tell an American that, that we're individualistic? It's just that very difficult. And it doesn't help that the English language for the second person, singular and plural, is the same word, you, you. Uh, so you don't know whether this passage is saying that you 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 need to turn, uh, or 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 you need to repent, uh, is speaking of just me or, or or all of us, and so we're we're handicapped on a variety of levels, uh, and and so we don't we don't ever just think about repentance as communally. We we if you if I were to say to you repent, you're not thinking about you and your family there. You're not thinking about you and your church there. Right. If I were to say to you repent, you're thinking oh what is that seeing in me right mm -hmm. now? Right. Uh, that, that needs to be addressed. That's our default. So uh, again, that's why it was such a surprise to recognize that, no, if, if someone in the first century heard repent, they would immediately be thinking about my people. Where, where, where have we gotten to here? Um, and, and where is it that we need to go? Uh, and if you look at repentance in the Bible and to kind of maybe sort of, of course, communal repentance is seen a lot more in the Old Testament. There are mechanisms for it, like these solemn or sacred assemblies where people come together communally to express godly sorrow together one with another. Uh, you, you, you see that a bit more readily. But you also see in the New Testament um, calls to repent. Uh, I mean, most certainly Revelation 2 and 3 have five of seven churches called to communally repent. It's interesting that corporate sin, let's call it, or communal sin, uh, is less specific typically than individual sin, right? You've got two shirts, you're being greedy, give one away, very mm -hmm. specific. Mm -hmm. But to Ephesus in Revelation 2, it's you, you don't love the way you used to love. Mm -hmm. You've left your first love, right? It's a, it's a, a bit more kind of a speaking to the flavor or the culture right. of the community. Uh, or, you know, likewise, you've become tolerant, Laodicea, you've become lukewarm. Uh, again, it's, it's more of a feel of, of Christ as he kind of comes in and recognizes the fellowship. I think we could probably say that, that, you know, there, there seems to be a malaise that has settled in among us here in our various configurations of fellowship. Uh, and what do we do about that? And we've, we've had a variety of of efforts at trying to bring about communal repentance. A lot of us are even predated by some of the early, early efforts where we would have churches reconstructed. Uh, and, and that probably is not even in the memory banks of many people at this point, uh, where they're, they're even kind of this line in the sand right. that would come right. to the community. And if, hey, if you're, if you're with Jesus, 
come over here. If not, you know, peace be with you, but we're going to move forward and, and, and bring this thing into a place where it really does look like a community of Christ. So this, that was efforts. I, I think most of what we do as evangelist church leaders is we try to bring about communal repentance by just preaching more faithfully and having more inspiring visions uh, for the, those that, that we have care uh, and then try to work on individual repentance of people who seem to be with their arms folded in the back as I'm saying these things. Or in today's case, I would have to say whose cameras are off. Right. Uh, you know, on a, on a Zoom worship service, is all right. Let me go work with enough of those little individual dots and and get the the the, the main group going. But it's it just isn't the way that the Bible seems to have as the typical approach. Typically, there are four components. One is an outsider that comes in who is not acclimated to the culture. The, the old adage, you know, you, you can't boil a frog by, by putting him into boiling water uh, because he'll jump right out. If a frog dropped into water jumps right out unless it's comfortable. And so you put on a tepid, warm, comfortable pot of water and You've got a bunch of frogs in there and they're all getting acclimated as the water gets hotter and hotter until it's nearing boiling until they're saying to one another does it smell like chicken it smells like chicken to you huh? <laughs> but, but but again they they they're they're acclimated supposedly i've always wanted to right do this but you know what peter was based here in hampton road so i, I have always you know, kind of been cautious but anyway but uh, but but if you if you take a frog supposedly and drop them into that same kind of community of frogs that are enjoying it, he would jump right out and go screaming to them, right. hey, that's boiling water. Mm. Why? Because he's not acclimated. Well, we all get acclimated, not, not in, in a quick fashion, but all of these things are not even half steps, but just tiny steps right. of, of compromise or tiny steps of convenience that we've all grown accustomed to. And, and maybe it's greed, maybe it's selfishness, maybe it's worldliness, maybe it's impurity, whatever it might be, but, but we, we, we all kind of get acclimated sadly along the way. And it's typically not one of our own. that's suddenly going to have a wake up a moment, but, but somebody that is not acclimated that comes in. And so in the old Testament, it's a Southern uh, prophet that goes to the Northern tribes, somebody that's a bit, bit different, uh, of course, or it is a, it is a Paul that comes into one, one of the church configurations, even though the one that he's never been to yet, like a Rome or Colossae. Uh, or, or it could be even Jesus coming back to the churches, but, but typically it's somebody who is different and, and, and a prophet is set apart by the Holy spirit. He may even be one among them, but he's pulled away, set apart by the Holy spirit comes back with a, a, a let's call it a, his, uh, you know, palate has been cleansed and, and suddenly he sees without the acclamation and is able to say, you know what? The emperor's got no clothes on, mm. you know, finally he can see it. So it, it begins with that, but the second component, you, you see this all through, Second Chronicles is a great book for this. I mean, you've, you, you've got Asa and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah, even Manasseh. You, you've got all of these corporate repentance events throughout Second Chronicles, but, but it begins with the prophet, the outsider. And then secondly, the, the second component is a humble leader who accepts the reproof and models godly sorrow. A humble leader who accepts the outside reproof and owns it and models godly sorrow. This, I would say, is probably the most important. 
for an effective run at corporate repentance. But then what does that leader do? He calls together the community, not to put it on them, but to help them to realize, you know what, my eyes have been opened. Uh, what was me that, that I was acclimated as well? What was me that I steered us even in this direction? But here's where we are. And let's lay out where we are. And as he kind of brings it to the community, um, the community then has an opportunity to come together and, and, and here's hoping the community is humble, of course. And the community comes together in these solemn assemblies. Joel 1 and 2 has a really good description of this. The end of Nehemiah 8 to 10, Ezra likewise, uh, have, have a lot of great scriptures on this. But the community comes together in lament, in godly sorrow, where they can express their godly sorrow. But a godly sorrow is not just about tears. It's also about determination. To, to turn, to turn back to the Lord. So number one, outside, outside eyes of a prophet. Number two, a humble leader that models this. Number three, a communal expression of godly sorrow. And number, number four, a rededication to the covenant with God. And that's always rather exciting. That's, that's the blowing the trumpets and ratifying the covenant that we see in second chronicles 15 under asta it, it is the charge moment where we recognize that we are the body of christ and let's let's love the way we loved it first sure we have a reputation for being awake but are asleep so wake up we are we've woken up thank you jesus and, and back we go uh to, to to live that out i've i've been able to be part of these in a variety of churches of all sizes and it's it's always been for me, and I would say for many there that have, have been part of this, the one thing that everybody says is, besides the fact that, wow, I, I didn't realize how, how powerful it is when communities repent, but number two was, it was the most um, palpable experience of the Holy Spirit hmm. in their lives, and hmm. it's always been that for me. It is the clearest experience with the Holy Spirit, and it's always quite encouraging because you recognize, you know what? The spirit has not left us. Mm. Praise God that we really are. First Corinthians 6, a temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells. And thank you, spirit, for not abandoning us, but, but bringing us to this place of eye-opening realization and communal repentance, re ready to serve you. I, I think what you're, you're sharing there, I mean, I think about where we're at. Like recently we started meeting back together for midweeks live from Zoom. And the way we set it up is uh, Kelsey Hahn helped organize. He's basically in charge of this. And so you could choose whether you want to be on Zoom or you could go to a live meeting in someone's home. There were like four different classes going on throughout the city. So it was left up to the individual where they want, how they wanted to take in the content that was being taught. Very interesting to me as I, as I observed it because we you know, the vaccination has been available for probably six months now, and many people have been vaccinated. Um, there's certainly people coming out live, which is great, and I'm, I'm teaching, and different people are teaching. On the other hand, there are many, many people that are either vaccinated or young or both, and they're watching it on Zoom. And, you know, without judgment, I go, hmm, interesting. And it makes me think, okay, what's what's going on here? What's happening here behind the scenes? Because it doesn't seem to be a health issue, but there seems to be a spiritual dilemma 
that's there's a spiritual issue that's that's at work. For those listening who are like, going, man, I, I need some help in my situation, whether they're self-supporting and they're leading a small ministry and they they have mm-hmm. a, an intuition intuition that, hey, yes, we've been challenged by by COVID, but also Satan has taken advantage of that and you know affected people. Could you give like a simple program? You shared some of the four steps. What could a person do to kind of bootstrap themselves to get their church back to spiritual health and repentance? Maybe you've already covered it, but what what, what advice would yeah. you give? Well, first, it takes a lot of discernment. We, I mean, we've been wrestling with it here. Like, are we in a moment of, of corporate repentance here right. in Hampton Roads? Right. And the, the staff has been doing a lot of real good, um, not just soul searching, but, but, but real good discussion groups with all the different corners of our ministry and to see what, what is driving some of this. Is it good-hearted folks that really are constrained by a circumstance? Um, or is it uh, folks that have, in a sense, grown accustomed to a new normal that doesn't look very much like the book of Acts. Uh, sometimes you can tell, you know, in, in um, Thessalonians, after Paul was torn away from the church, he wrote to them soon after, and, and he wrote and he said, but since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time, then he writes this, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. And earlier he said that it was Satan who, created that separation but but so satan is trying to create these circumstantial separations that we have and and, and we are in many cases and and there probably are a, a lot of medical concerns that only stoke the flames of this but 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 nonetheless we we are torn away in some cases and it's let's let's just say um unavoidable but are we separated in heart as well as in person. And you can tell, I think, mm-hmm. I think you can tell when somebody's like, you know what? I can't, I can't be there tonight, even on zoom. Mm-hmm. If, uh, is there going to be a recording? Can we catch up later? Maybe we can talk about it at some other time. I, man, I hate to not be part of the body life and what we're doing there. Uh, Hey, make sure that you let me know what, what was the charge? Maybe I can take part in that at least. So there, there's something that you can still tell. We've, we've had a few of our sisters actually go into hospice and, and they were unable to be part of what we were doing. But, but they, they made sure, even if they didn't know how to work Zoom, that, that they had an iPad and that, that their friend in service had an iPad and that those two, that they would be live, you know, they're participating in the service and that right. it would make sure people would come up and say hi. To, you could, they were not separated in heart. Right. They were saying, yes, they were separate, but they were not separated in heart. Right. So first of all, I would just say, determine, are we just separated in person or are we separated in heart? If it isn't heart, well, then we asked, we got work to do and we better be alarmed. Like we, we better like jump to it because that's Satan wanting to bring that about because Paul says it is Satan who, who, who is the one that is doing this work that is, that, that is causing the separation. So if, if that separation is allowing us to be um, disunified, even in heart, wow, time, time to go to work and please don't, don't um, just hope for something better because conditions will get better. Right. We got to swing into action. And if we, if, if we do then swing into action, then I, then I would encourage you to have a buddy from some other town 
uh, or some other place, just come through uh, and, and, and have them kind of take a peek under the hood, you know, kind of give them a full access pass to talk to different members of your church, do a bit of a 360 uh, in, in terms of analysis from, from, from all different angles. Uh, and and let, let that outside eye of that sister, that brother, that couple, wh whoever it might be, be able to come back to you and you know, give you insight from, mm -hmm. from that. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, that, that's a great first step. And, and by the way, if you're, if you're sensing it as a small group leader, as a church leader, you know what, bravo, Bra bravo that you are. Sometimes it's, it's so easy to just get acclimated. Right. So I think anybody who's sensing it, you know what, amen. But then please swing into action. I mean, this is the bride of Christ. We can't just have a lazy hope about this. We have got to swing into action. So again, have, have immediately somebody to come in with a rather thorough uh, look at, at everything. And, uh, and then have a humility. Really pray to God that God will speak through that person. And have a humility that, that I'll take extreme ownership. I get that this is the, the, the body of Christ and, and not mine, but nonetheless, I, I want to, I want to be the one that recognizes the responsibility that I have here. Uh, and to, and to have a genuine, sincere, godly sorrow, repentance, contrition before the Lord that, yeah, we, we have ended up at this very place. And, right. and probably I got acclimated along the way. And probably I got, you know, in, in a sense, uh, jaded, Right. In, in different ways and lost faith in some people mm. along the way. And, and there's probably a lot of different ways to take ownership. Um, but, but then to, to, to then um, express that to the church that mm. uh, I'm, I'm at a place where I never thought that we would be, but here we are mm. uh, and, and we're at it together. And I, I hate that you, that we're all at it together because it's affecting a lot of people. And I realized that, that this is me, but, but in order for this to turn, this is a we thing. And, and, and when we've all contributed, right. uh, a good analogy is when a family has dysfunction, uh, there's, let's say a, a mom and dad and two kids, all of them play a role. There, there is a communal dysfunction that's going on there. It's a disunified family. It's not a purposeful family. Probably what has happened is the kids may get disrespectful. The dad checks out or the dad is too tired. The mom has to step up, do a disproportionate share of of, of child rearing and child discipline. Uh, as a result, the kids start to look at dad as the good guy, the mom is the bad guy, they paint that, that gets exacerbated. Through it all, the kids know how to play the game so that they can go between mom and dad. And, and overall, you end up with a, um, a flavor or a culture in that family that is quite dysfunctional. Mm. But everybody actually contributed to it. Mm. And, and so when what, what is important for that family to turn it around is, is one for the dad to take ownership, of course, but then for everybody to take ownership. The, the dad takes ownership of saying, hey, you know what, I, I have been. Again, for, for the dad to confess and apologize before the family and before the Lord is important, but he's not apologizing for, let's say, personal sin that has nothing to do with this corporate dysfunction. He's apologizing not for, for, for that in particular, but for personal responsibility for the communal dysfunction. What is my contribution to the communal dysfunction? Well, for that dad, uh, he, he decided to, 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 to be lazy and to indulge and to indulge in escapism rather than engage in the family. For the mom, she may have become harsh 
in her wielding of authority and critical of the dad and, and even tearing him down in, in the process. Uh, and, and thus she would, she would speak of that was her contribution to the dynamic. Mm. Uh, and the kids likewise is that they, they manipulated it and they became cynical and they became snarky. Right. That was their contribution to the dynamic. I, I think you can see that played out in a Bible talk a little bit more easily and then ultimately played out in a fuller region or church. Hmm. But, it, but it helps to even do that as an exercise in any church in, in a small group like a household of singles or a family household then in a Bible talk, small group configuration, and then have everybody ready to come together as the full body of Christ, where they think, ah, I get it. I am now going to be apologizing and confessing and praying before my brothers and sisters for what I've contributed right. to, the, to, to, to this communal dysfunction. Hmm. Uh, like I'm, not, I'm not about to go and you know, apologize because I cheated on my expense report. But let's hope I'm dealing with that anyway, right? That if, if somebody's thinking, oh, it's time to confess personal sin, and they walk in off the street. No, 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 you're, you're, you're coming in to, to own your responsibility for the communal dysfunction and to apologize one to another, uh, ask forgiveness, again, for everybody else to, to, to grant that forgiveness uh, and to then pray before the Lord about that thing. When everybody comes and does that together, the whole, we, we did it as a small group, by the way, my small group needed to do so. And my goodness, as it always is the case, it is a time of the Holy Spirit among us, powerful tears and joy all mixed together as we recognize that, man, we're, we ended up in a weird spot, but you know, we're not going to stay here. And thank you, God, that you're guiding us out of this. Mm. Okay, so you did that recently with your own small group. Right, now, yeah, yeah. Are you planning on doing this with your church overall, or do you know of other churches that are currently using this model to help their churches come out of COVID? Sure. Um, you know, currently the Richmond church, pray for them. They're, they're going through this right now. We, we were there a few weeks ago to kind of launch it. Uh, the Richmond church is not a small church. It's, you know, 220. Uh, the Singapore church is again, pray for them. They're going through this. They have a great humility in their leadership as, as they're running after this. Um, the um, uh, Potomac Valley Church has, has been, a, been a kind of a really great church for a variety of reasons. But when, when they were turning the corner, they decided, you know what, why bandage the wound anything but thoroughly? Hmm. So let's, let's bandage the wound thoroughly. And, and they engaged uh, a few years back in communal repentance that then launched them on a much better path in Christ. But, but by the way, I mean, the, the, uh, Palm Beach region of the Florida church has been part of this, different regions of the LA church, Kiev, London, uh, different churches throughout um, America. I mean, many, many churches. So I, I would say probably if, if you're really interested in maybe getting case studies from different people, uh, you know, we could look at Fresno, which was just such a terrific experience for some. I, I heard from so many, I wasn't anywhere near it, but the one thing I heard from people there was I, I now know there's a Holy Spirit without a doubt. Uh, and, and we're so grateful for what he's done for us. Uh, again, there, there, there really are a good, good, good number of examples. Right. right. Uh, well, let me go ahead and change the channel here. I, I have to confess, Ed, I know that you and Mike Fontenot are major proponents of expositional teaching and preaching. And every time I write a topical lesson, 
I, I just feel a little guilty. I just have to just confess. Why don't be the Holy Spirit? And, and a thought comes into my mind. I thought, oh my gosh, I wonder if, if Ed would approve of this one. He probably wouldn't, but I'm going to go ahead and preach it anyway. Can you give your thoughts on expo- expositional preaching? And for those maybe not familiar with it, what it is. I'm sure. Uh, and again, I'm not a rabid proponent by, by any sense. I just feel as if it, it ends up being uh, more fulfilling for me and I hope for the church as well. Uh, but it's, it's rather than come up with a list of topics, and, and again, this is never done with a bad heart. Uh, you might think that, you know what, our, our church could probably really benefit from a few sermons on love and then faith and then hope. Uh, then maybe we could kind of move along to the community and we'll do some sermons on that. And, and typically you, you, you come up with very effective scriptures that will help with that. And you compile them together and that becomes topical sermons along the way. Just because it's topical doesn't mean that it's not expositional. Uh, really expositional just means that it's really the Bible's thoughts that are guiding you rather than your own thoughts. And then after you have a really good thought, you go looking for a scripture to go corroborate your own thought. Right. Uh, you don't have an opportunity for that at all. You do have an opportunity for that a little bit, of course, with, with topical preaching. Um, but, but when you are just going to work your way through, so next year we're considering making our way through a really big project, the book of Romans. Uh, and as we do so, so when we went through the book of Luke, it took us about two years. Wow. Yeah. Right. And, but, but we've, we've done this through a variety of books. If you look up podcasts with Hampton Roads Church in it, they're all just simply expository preaching series. And you'll get an example of that if you, if you do so. But, but anyway, um, it, you, you, you just simply then just bring what, what is the, the, the next section of text before the church and bring it in such a way uh, that it's not just a to whom it may concern, but to recognize in there is a big idea and, and even in that big idea, there's a universality to that big idea that, that can apply and that I will apply it to, to, to our church here. But I will first help them to get into that church there, mm. get them into the, the then and there as deeply as I can, and that we would all be astounded by the brilliance of the word of God then and there. But recognize as we're marveling at its brilliance, there are truth bombs that are kind of mm. landing all about us. Let's grab a couple of those and then apply them to our lives. Mm. And then we'll move on to the next section of the text. Sometimes the next section of the text may not be anywhere near as compelling, but it's interesting if you continue to work on it, work on it, work on it, you, you, you end up finding that, you know, you know, what I thought was maybe a throwaway week ended up being something really, really important. And, and again, it, it's hard to explain all of the dynamics, but if you, if you kind of look at some of our exp- expository series, you'll notice that we don't really skip anything as we make our way through. And it, it all ends up being, I, I feel, uh, rather profitable right. for us. And, and I hope it teaches people, we're also trying to promote biblical literacy for the entire congregation. And, and I hope that along the way, we talk about how we wrestled with the text and how we ended up coming to some of these places where we're now preaching about it from the text. And that that would also help people in their own Bible study as they wrestle with text because you, you typically don't have a bible study and think i'm going to go to seven eight different scriptures you tend to kind of read a chunk of scripture along the way right. and uh, here, here's hoping that maybe to some degree we're helping to inform them and how they would go about their bible study right right 
Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. I, I want to just ask this one final question. What advice would you give to the person who wants to make this life count, wants to live a no regrets life? I would say the biggest thing then is to really believe that following Jesus has a wonderful prerequisite. Deny yourself. It's, it's, it's Jesus's grand call of significance to us. It gives us dignity. It gives us purpose. It gives us meaning. But it all begins with deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. That if we make life about us in any way, then it's always going to be a rather miserable run. Mm. But, but, but when we can really let loose of self, oh, it's a glorious, it's a glorious run. We're untethered from all of self uh, that would uh, bring entitlement into play. Mm. Um, so, yeah, wow. it just I, I think take away the brakes, mm. take away everything that would be. Um, undermining life to the full. Mm. And that, that, that typically is quickly achieved through denied self. That's awesome. Thank you for the life you're, you're living. I, I just have to go back to an earlier question. I, I, you gave up a major corporate career with Coca-Cola. Your wife gave up a career in medicine. Le your earning lifetime earnings is are, are far less than what you, what you would have earned. Any regrets? Do you ever just look back and go, oh man, things could be so different? No, never one. Never, <laughs> never, 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 never a single one. Not, not at all. Uh, matter of fact, there was one night a little while back where, where even Deb and I were saying to one another, you know, what, what if our salaries could change a little bit? And what would, what would that sound like? What would be the perfect number? And it was, it was an interesting exercise because we went up by increments of 10,000 or so. And, and then we talked about it. We did the thought experiment of extrapolating what that would mean. And the only thing that we could come up with at the end that would actually be beneficial is a reduction, not an increase. Because wow. <laughs> I, I think we, we, we end up with good upside down values in the kingdom of God. Right. Well, thank you so much no, for your time. No, no, no regrets. That's awesome. I, I, what a great example. Thanks for your time, Ed, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for all you're doing for the kingdom. Oh, thank you. You, you likewise. Uh, you're a great champion and uh, making a big difference. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much for joining the Rob Skinner Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about it and how to find it. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count live a no-regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.